1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we will be talking to Dr. Xing Yi zhen about her new book, Cultivating Membership in Taiwan and Beyond, Relational Citizenship. This book was published by Lexington in 2021. Citizenship is traditionally viewed as a legal status to be possessed. Cultivating membership in Taiwan and beyond proposes the concept of relational citizenship to articulate the value-laden, interactive nature of belongingness. Chen examines the role of relationality which produces and is a product of localized emotions attends to particular histories and global trajectories embedded within uneven power relations. By focusing on Taiwan, a non-Western society with a tradition to adeptly attune to local experiences and those from various global influences, relational citizenship highlights the measures used to define and encourage interactions with newcomers. This book shows the multi-layer communicative processes in which relations are gradually created, challenged, merged, disrupted, repaired, and solidified. Jim further argues that this concept is not bound to nation-state geographic boundaries as relationality bleeds through national borders. Relational citizenship has the potential to move beyond the East versus West epistemology, to examine people's lived realities wherein the sense of belonging is discursively accomplished, viscerally experienced, and publicly performed. So this is a brief introduction about the book, and I look forward to talk about it more. So now, first of all, let's welcome our author, Zheng Yi. Yi, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Li Ping, so much for the wonderful introduction and also
0: for having me on your podcast. Um, and then um, really appreciate this program because it's one of my go-to places to learn about scholarship of
1: Taiwan. Well, thank you for your kind words and agreeing to be on the show. And all right, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also your research interest as well? Um, yeah, so, um,
0: you know, Taiwan is a place that nurtured me for um, about more than 20 years. And after graduating from college in Taiwan as a sociology major, I gained a teaching assistant scholarship to come to the U.S. for my master's degree. And then later um, I went into my Ph.D. studies. And I um, study in the field of intercultural communication. And my research interests have always crossed disciplinary boundaries, Um, you know, communication studies, intersectionality studies, citizenship and immigration studies. And I am particularly intrigued by various ways identity formations occur. So I examine this process from a critical perspective that often you know, include post-colonial and transnational lenses.
1: All right. Um, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. And um, so uh, with that, so how do you uh, move to this uh, book project?
0: Um, yeah, so this project uh, really was a result of various forces combined, um, when I wrote my first book called Culturing Interface, Identity, Communication, and Chinese Transnationalism, this was years ago. I was a grad student with a, a F1 visa, um, living solely on a U.S. $800 monthly stipend, doing research as a pro-grad student uh, with a group of Taiwanese and Chinese migrants, immigrants um, living on the U.S.-Mexico border and working there as well. And then in 2007, I became, you know, H-1B visa holder. And then in 2015, I gained my U.S. citizenship. And I started to really reflect more deeply on the meaning and feeling of being, you know, an F-1 visa holder, an H-1 visa holder, and then to, you know, a, a U.S. citizen um, passport holder. And it also happened during the time when there was a lot of, um, I suppose, like louder voices about the dreamers. And later, you know, um, uh, the deferred action of childhood arrival, DACA, became more prominent conversation in the US. And whenever I visited Taiwan, I also noticed more newcomers and I, saw, I read more news about uh, newcomers in Taiwan. And because of my research interests, my curiosity started to grow. Um, you know, I just decided to embark this journey as a dual citizen, right? Like I'm a Taiwanese citizen and also a U.S. citizen and also working as a faculty in a, in a U.S. institution. So in a way, this book um, was written as, as my personal and professional quest um, to just gain a deeper understanding and and sorting out my feeling of a sense of being a citizen.
1: Thank you for sharing that with us and especially you mentioned when individuals cross the borders, you know, either it's national borders or language border, cultural border and always come with that border is the legal status this kind of like designation of their uh, identity or legal identity and you mentioned that also different contests in workplace and also in uh, personal life as well so you mentioned citizenship and this is also a keyword uh, from uh, your book title and also your book as well so first of all i would like to know um what do you think about citizenship and uh, what is the differences or similarity between citizenship and membership as both keywords are in your book title and also later in your analysis of different cases as well?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, thanks for noticing that. <laughs> Those two keywords I was trying to um, highlight in the book title as well as the the book uh, itself. Um, so citizenship is mostly... Um, or most commonly viewed as this, you know, sort of exclusionary transaction um, of rights and obligation between legal members and their their state. Um, So this is mostly a, you know, political scientist, for example, um, Charles Tilley's definition. So there is this sort of inclusion and exclusion process by nature. And I want to talk a little bit about uh perhaps a, a brief development of this concept uh in the field, right? So um during the nineteen fifties, uh, sociologist um Thomas Humphrey Marshall, based on the British experiences, expanded this notion of citizenship into like a civil citizenship where one could have representation in courts and there's a political citizenship that let led people to participate in politics and also social citizenship that offer you know citizens these opportunities to and rights to to be uh, well to prosper so uh, for example uh, receiving educational opportunities and in the About mid-1990s, American anthropologist Renato Rosado um, adds another dimension, which is a cultural citizenship, and that um, explains the rights for minorities to be culturally different. So, you know, since then, there have been a lot uh, more nuances Add to the idea of citizenship based on identity, such as you know, gender, sexuality, um, race, socioeconomic status. So, um, so this uh, has been a very vibrant, um, vibrant field. And so, there is indeed similarity between citizenship and membership. Um, so, like we mentioned earlier, um, it is about a member's relation, legal relations to the state. Um, and then both really are um, possible to be uh, purchased, right? And then they allow the individuals access to resources. So if you if we're thinking about the uh, just the idea of passports, um, you know, in 2014, uh, the New York Times had an article reporting how uh, wealthy people from places like China and Russia were uh, buying citizenship. Of Malta, this is an island. This is an island nation between um, Sicily and North Africa, and it's also an EU um, member. So, citizenship and membership um, acquiring of such allows a person um, resources and mobility um, to some extent. And so being a member of a group um, at the same time entails you know, certain expectations, um, paying taxes, uh, following rules and, and regulations to maintain the functioning of the entity. So there's that similarity there. However, I see membership um, entails a notion of belonging um, that goes beyond the legal or political affiliation to a nation. So in a sense, one can be a citizen to a nation, yet not feeling belong at all times. So the sense of belonging is what I'm interested in exploring in the project.
1: Yeah, thank you for this amazing uh, layout of both keywords in terms of the privilege or expectations that both uh, keywords uh, might uh, include, but also this uh, very interesting uh, layer of belonging. As you mentioned, some people might get citizenship in one country, but that not necessarily feel belong or they feel um, as a member in that particular uh, country. So uh, with this uh, two keywords tackled, another keyword is uh, relational and relationality. So can you tell us about your use and approach of the word relationality? And also, what is the relational citizenship that you developed in this book? Yes. Um, So...
0: As I mentioned, um, you know, I grew up in Taiwan and so, you know, uh, being a Taiwanese, I'm heavily influenced by the idea of relationality um, in how a society functions. And um, citizenship as a study, as a, as a field, um, even, the, even as a concept, is often connected to the Western nations with a, a strong legal connotation to it. And because of my background and, you know, um, the kind of um, the kind of um, environment that I grew up in, I started to rethink the idea and practice of citizenship from uh, this sort of like a so-called non-Western perspective as a hope to decolonize our ways of thinking about citizens' formations. Um, so, I came to learn about, um, um, there's this Italian sociologist, Denati, uh, he proposed this idea of societal citizenship, and uh, basically it is a, a relational set of rights and duties of individuals and social groups. So. In a way, he's he's saying that citizens are individual in relation. And to me, that idea was quite revolutionary because it moved citizenship beyond this individual realm, right? Um, At the same time, it still... Um, remained viewing citizenship from the rights-based ideology that's informed by the Western liberalism. And I wanted to explore how this element could be built into a theory, um, sort of trying to see an idea in action. Um, So the way I see um, citizenship is not rights to be owned. Right? but it's rather a relationality accomplished by multiple parties through communication and I call this process relational citizenship and in a multicultural society relational citizenship is a strategy um, that would allow you know interruptions um, realignments or sometimes an enhancement of a national identity of loyalty um, so Uh, For example, you know, one of the elements in relational citizenship is how relational distance, I call it relational distance, uh, between members could be constructed to create this sense of belonging or lack thereof. Um, So the way the distance is managed is really rooted in the deeply held local values. And so, for example, in Taiwan, the idea of qing, um, which roughly can be translated into emotion or affection. So this idea of qing became a key element to generate how society feels towards certain members, and these vo- these local values can very quickly draw visceral and bodily kind of reactions to members, um, and and to our fellow you know um, citizens. So that's how I. Um, see relationality as a key uh, um, ingredient, if you if you will, when we uh, talk about and think about the um, the the concept and the process of citizen making.
1: Right, and then especially you mentioned this non Western perspective in the uh, citizen formation, individual, but also in terms of their belonging relation. Um, sometimes confrontation uh, with the uh, community and I'm looking at the book cover since we're unpacking every keywords about your book title and one thing I do like to mention is your book cover the uh, painting there so uh, Xinyi would you like to tell us more about the uh, painting uh, I mean the book cover and then how it is related to the concept of relational citizenship that you are developing
0: Yes, of course, and um, I, you know, think my 15-year-old niece uh, Yu Yan will be thrilled that Li Ping, you uh, mentioned this um, painting as a book cover. Um, so I thank you on her behalf here. <laughs> um, so my uh, niece did this painting um, called. Gardening Paiwan's memory. Paiwan is uh, one of the indigenous group um, in Taiwan. And she, I believe, was about 12 or 13 when she um, um, created that painting. And um, it is a painting that shows hands um, holding on each other. So, um, in a way, that uh, reminded me of the concept or to me it illustrates the concept of relational citizenship it's about people intentionally holding on to each other to then um you know stay um, together and feel connected right when we're touching each other there's a sense of feeling belong to a larger entity than ourselves and the background of these hands in the painting were just mountains and, you know, green mountains, very lush. And that's, uh, to me, what uh, my hometown, Taiwan, uh, refers to. As long as um, individuals are um, willing and consciously holding on to each other and feeling each other's presence, uh, that is a... Uh, Citizenship, re- a group of citizens, um, you know, uh, uh, working together and being existing together in a space. Um, so that's the reason that I chose her painting as a cover for
1: this book. Thank you, Xingyi, for introducing uh, the work, but also the talented and also very inspiring uh, young artist. For our listeners, um, you can see the book cover uh, from our MBM book uh, website, but also you can also google this book. This is amazing artwork and then um, can help us understand the relational citizenship. So we talk about the different theoretical uh, framework and conceptual model about uh, citizenship, membership, and relationality. So now we talk about Taiwan. And uh, many of our uh, listeners are interested in Taiwan, but may not necessarily familiar with the context for your analysis. So can you tell us a little bit about the uh, context, either history, politics, or culture that is central to your research context in this book? Um, yes, I really appreciate the opportunity to offer some background of
0: Taiwan and uh, I'm gonna try to uh, you know be brief here. Um, so in terms of location um, as an island that's situated between the maritime routes of Europe, Asia and Africa, Um, Taiwan has experienced very vibrant um, trading activities as a strategic location as early as the 1500s. And because Taiwan was an unclaimed island sitting at the intersection of the western and eastern seas, it became a prize that the European power vied over. And they were um, Chinese traders and uh, fishermen who were able to translate aboriginal languages mixed with um, some Chinese words. So Taiwan was and has always been a cosmopolitan, multicultural space. Um, historically, Taiwan has been partially and uh, at times fully occupied by both Western and Eastern powers, um, from the Dutch, the Spanish, the Ming loyal, you know Zhen, Chen Gong and um, his his uh, offspring, the Japanese to the KMT, Kuomintang, uh, um, after uh, the uh, after World War II, um, Taiwan's people. Have been adapting to different regimes and um, therefore have been hybridizing their identity. And relating to its um, history it is this sort of cultural aspect, right? So um, after the Dutch East. Indian company arrived, they further encouraged Chinese emigrating to Taiwan as a way to cultivate the land and also, you know, bring them revenue because they taxed them um, and um, using them to help, uh, you know, to quell the Taiwanese aborigines resistance and rebellions against the company's exploitations. so Han settlers were encouraged to, you know, settle the land, and this land were owned by the Aborigines who were primary um, hunters. So there was tension, and the Han Chinese continue arriving to Taiwan for the next 400 years. And after the Dutch left, Guo Xinyang, Zheng Gong a Minsk loyal, um, you know, occupied Taiwan and um, his family became highly influential with trading activities in South and East China Seas. So there was a lot of, right, interactions and connections. So Taiwan is never like an island isolated, right? It's always this, you know, uh, mutual influences and a lot of inter- exchange uh, within its its neighboring environment. And because they, the Jens family uh, was so wealthy um, as a, you know, uh, so the form of formidable pirates, um, they accumulate a lot of wealth and they build strong navy, and then they encourage more immigrants um, to Taiwan. So both Dutch and Zheng regimes, they made concerted efforts to influence Taiwanese culture. The Dutch missionaries—they they came with the military, and but then you know they also established schools to educate both local men and women. Um, so these women were the earliest females who received education in Taiwan. Um, the missionaries introduced Bible to the Aborigines, and then create Xinjiangwan, which is a hybrid language between Dutch and the local words. And Zheng Gong came to Taiwan, um, started to sino centered, started to kind of introduce sino centered uh, education and promoted that. Um, this is a kind of Chinese elite culture, um, of Confucian values, and so. You know the Chen's family built schools for children to learn the Chinese language, and particularly focusing on male cultural and political leadership. So um, even though Taiwan, uh, you know, remained, um, you know, culturally and politically distinct from China, um, there was, you know, influence. Um, of uh, and after the sino japan War, uh, Taiwan was ceded to Japan in 1895 for half a century, and um, it was uh, the the literate elites, right, who continued to propel resistance and advocate for, you know. Uh, uh, self-governance uh, of, of Taiwanese people um, during the Japanese colonization. So, you know, there is a long tradition of making a living through hunting, fishing, and trading in Taiwan and Taiwanese people's experiences. Uh, therefore, the transnational characteristics mixed with Eastern and Western cultural expressions uh, continue to develop throughout Japanese um Um, colonization Um, and after War II the allies uh, decided to reinstitute Taiwan to Dr. Sun Yat-sen's Republic of China um, that was led by Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Kai-shek appointed the Fujian governor um, Chen Yi to uh, basically as a a minister of Taiwan and the mainlanders saw themselves in the position of, you know, I'm going to put in quotation, freeing Taiwan from the Japanese colonial imperialism. Mm-hmm. So they expected Taiwanese um, people to appreciate and give all their devotion to the KMT's um, efforts of the in the war to fight with the communists. At the same time, um the Formans, Formosans, um, although they resented the discriminatory treatment um, under the Japanese colonial government. Um, after they encountered the mainlander uh, the mainland soldiers, um, many of these soldiers came from the Chinese rural village. Um, the Formosans understood their more prosperous ways of living, their economy and um, higher education uh, because, you know, of Japanese um, colonial policy, partially because of that. And um, they expected to be treated as equal by the KMT. Um, However, that wasn't the case. So that complicated um, relationships kind of, you know, was one of the calls to the infamous um, 228 incident, um, where on February 27th, 1947, a widow named uh, Lin Jiang Mai, who was selling black market cigarettes to make a living, um, was brutally hurt by agents from the Monopoly Bureau. And then so uh, the next day, February 28th, uh, you know, a couple of thousands of demonstrators gathered together and then asked for, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, issue to be addressed. And a committee of prominent Taiwanese were organized to demand for appropriate settlement because, you know, many people were killed. And it didn't go far. Um, and the KMT hardened its group over Taiwan. So, in the seventies early seventies r o c was expelled um from the world organizations after uh, many of the countries recognized um the chinese communist china um officially so taiwan became you know uh increasingly isolated um and then taiwan has struggled for self you know uh autonomy and self um uh, representation uh, for many years. And it wasn't until um, the early 90s when Taiwan's then President Li Deng Hui started to uh, promote um, a series of policy and visions to Taiwan to um, uh, to basically uh, start to uh, recognize Taiwanese people and its culture, its own right, right? So uh, Li Denghui was a native and Hokkien-speaking Taiwanese um, who was uh, elected directly by Taiwanese people as the first democratic foremost and president in 1996. And so Taiwan completed this transformation of democracy. So since then, Taiwanese people had directly um, in- elected three presidents, two of whom were native born from the DPP party, uh, Democratic Progressive Party. So although Taiwan has become more open and democratic, the uh, PRC, People of Republic China's pressure on Taiwan's self-identification never was absent. So it was under this historical context that the newcomers arrived Taiwan.
1: Right. And then um, thank you for laying out this uh, historical chapters of serial colonizations by different powers and also political transitions from uh, authoritarian regime and now uh, democratic uh, society as well. And you mentioned this kind of different and also multiple cultural influences and especially wave of immigrants. And this lead to our uh, later we'll talk more about the newcomers as well. So, with all this different uh, transition, different changes in Taiwan's history, so what are Taiwan's experience in citizenship development? Um, as I mentioned,
0: um, you know, Taiwan has been, and then you know, Taiwan has been subjugated under many foreign powers, and. In each of this uh, period, there had been resistance against the, you know, sort of, uh, imposition of ruling from the outside of the island. And each of this resistance, uh, in my, in my view, um, Created, regenerated, and added to this sense of subjectivity. So during the Dutch rule, there was a Chinese farmer Guo Huaiyi gathered an army of you know uh, many Chinese who live in Taiwan at the time at the time to um, you know fight against the Dutch um, you know exploitation. And during the Japanese colonization, similar things happened. Taiwanese elite you know advocated for. Uh, creating uh, a middle school in Taichung that was, you know, at the same level as the middle school in Japan, right? So there were... Um, and had always been this this kind of incidence where um, taiwanese people recognized their own um, agency and their own identity that was distinctively taiwanese um, and that sense of you know, consciousness continued to grow and as i mentioned earlier under the don presidency they you know started to become even more pronounced and articulated you know in the in the concept of bantu化, by Taiwanization, and and the process, um, uh, you know, inherit this tradition of um, um, developing a sense of self without negating all the past influences, um, particularly in in recent years, and and up, and this is the you know the the context that's the you know, the, the newcomers uh, come into in a society that had struggled with, um, you know, understanding their traditions and potentials to um, continuously to become, you know, quote-unquote Taiwanese, right? So it's a very sort of a open um, uh, concept in the making at the present time and up to 2018 more than 600,000 new arrivals moved to taiwan because of marriage and more than 75% were female and the marriage immigrants and their offsprings are classified as the new immigrants and as a fifth largest ethnic group and um and then at the same time um, taiwan had approximately 700 um, and you know 7 sorry 738,000 foreign residents um, the majority coming was foreign laborers from southeast asia to work in the 3d industry the dirty dangerous and difficult and this was a result of policy <clears throat> that try to respond to labor shortage. And there were um, also uh, the so-called professional, uh, you know, uh, uh, workers um, amongst these uh, foreign residents. And these professional uh, workers come from, you know, places like United States, Malaysia, um, India. So... Um, there was, uh, uh, as of um, twenty eighteen, uh, there is a new economic immigration law that allows middle level technical manpower to apply for permanent residency and settlement of their family. However, um, the you know this 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 law really was meant for. Um, middle and upper class uh, newcomers and uh, because there's a requirement of a a salary amount for monthly salary between like a thousand US dollars to 1300 US dollars so all this is to say that with the uh, 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 colonial past and then Taiwan's Taiwanese experiences developing a subjectivity under various, you know, foreign um, um, powers to uh, opening up to the global economy, um, absorbing the capitalistic um, ethos and neoliberal, you know, doctrine. Um, we do see that um, uh, ideology influencing Taiwan's uh, present citizenship practices.
1: Right. And then I especially appreciate that in addition to earlier, you mentioned the different historical chapters about colonization, political transition, but you also mentioned here the economic development and also demographic composition of Taiwan, which is uh, constantly involving and then the meaning of being taiwanese uh, taiwanese or taiwanese is in the process of becoming and then also in the process of making as well. So uh, with that, um, you mentioned about the new immigrants uh, in your response earlier. So I was wondering, can you talk more about how do these new immigrants, either they come to Taiwan by marriage or by uh, uh, work or for study, uh, inform or complicate relational citizenship in Taiwan? Um,
0: yes as um, you just you know um, mentioned that this citizenship is an in- interactive um, circular kind of practice and um, you know discourses about new immigrants and also used by by uh, new immigrants facilitates you know a sense of their belonging um, in Taiwan and um, at the same time, Uh, newcomers, they they experience belongingness differently. So um, in my work, I illustrate how relationality serve as a narrative strategy of citizenship making in Taiwan. And it is done through constructing this, this ideal citizens um, who relationally is located in family. So on the one hand, um, the public discourse use new immigrants to... Um, use the relationality of immigrants to, um, you know, to kind of uh, create this ideal citizens of, uh, of Taiwan. And um, so, uh, for example, when the term of new immigrants or new residents, Xin Zhu min, appeared in uh, public discourses, um, it is oftentimes refer to women who come from Southeast Asian countries and the term new residence and family are frequently combined. So that makes them inseparable from the domestic uh, family sphere, right? So um, words to describe these newcomers um, usually are like mother of the Taiwanese son, wife of the husband, daughter-in-law of Taiwan, um, foreign spouse, Vietnamese mother, Indonesian bride. Um, So uh, their membership is really centered around their relationship to Taiwan and or to a quote-unquote real Taiwanese, right? So um, they are uh, or their relationality is established um, through their, uh, their belongingness is established through, you know, their relationality to Taiwan in public discourses. And, and that's sort of how they are implicated. Um, at the same time, they also um, use certain, you know, this, 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 uh, relational terms to describe themselves, right? So they themselves participate in the uh, public discourses of um, constructing re- relational citizenship. Um, so for example, uh, many of the new immigrants I, in, I interviewed during my fieldwork, they use phrases like, you know, um, sisters from Vietnam, like 越南来的姐妹, um uh, sisters from Indonesia, in um, the I want to go and be with my sister, uh, or I, I come here to help my sisters, right? So then themselves oftentimes, um, you know, uh, embedding themselves with this discourse of relational citizenship to identify themselves and connecting to members, um, other you know, new immigrant um Members in Taiwan. Um, I do want to point out that uh, to many of these newcomers from Southeast Asia, uh, this type of fictive kin networking practice is not new. Um, Nevertheless, um, there is a very strong sense of um, you know uh, resorting to relationality as a way to establish their belonging um, in Taiwan.
1: Right. And then especially I appreciate what you mentioned that uh, the belongingness can be a multiple dimension. So in the family or in the uh, Taiwan public discourse, and also they build their own community as well. Uh, They are their sisters or their people, and then they are kind of building and expanding uh, their community. So uh, with that, and uh, we talk about the public discourse about new immigrants as well. So uh, in your book, there's one chapter about space. And this is about two different spaces. It could be the physical space and it could be virtual online space. So uh, I would like to hear more about how this physical or uh, or and, uh, online spaces tell us about the mundane and performative nature of the relational citizenship.
0: Um, Yes, I really appreciate you pointing out to this mundaneness of um, relational citizenship performances. Um, So one of the unique situations in Taiwan citizenship is that the majority of the newcomers share similar physical characteristics with those who um, arrived earlier, right? So, um, like one of my interviewees said, um, we're no different than what Taiwanese citizens may look like until we open our mouth and speak. (laughs) So, new immigrants in Taiwan can, to some extent, pass as Taiwanese. Um, However, you know, being invisible um, risks of being. Forgotten, right? So, to assert their presence in Taiwan, public spaces become arenas to witness um, their presence and also to struggle over uh, their belongingness. So These places, uh, whether it's physical space or online space, um, are what um, anthropologist Mary Pratt called contact zones, where cultural meets, clash, grapple with each other, uh, oftentimes in context of unbalanced power relations. So, um, one example of the physical place where um, I really saw this relational citizenship um, unfolding uh, was during one of my research trips. I visited a new immigrant cultural hall in Taoyuan. And this is um, the fourth, Taoyuan has the fourth largest immigrant population in taiwan and this building was interest interesting because um, it used to be taoyuan police department and in two, um, 2018 it was renovated to become a cultural hall for new immigrants so you know symbolically and materially speaking um, it, it holds a lot of significance and during my uh, field trip there um, there was an interactive art show called um, "Dear Future Me," and it was a exhibition of um, um, photo- photographs that were taken by new immigrants after taking a workshop, uh, taking a series of workshops. And the workshops was held by you know the local government with the you know I believe a sociology professor from Taipei's um, help. So. Um, After, you know, attending a series of workshops, um, um, eight female, they call them cultural ambassadors, they display photos that um, they took. And these photos uh, represented who, you know, she is and uh, who she has become since um, she left her home country. And there were eight stations there. Each station has a portfolio in five languages, English, Indonesian, Mandarin, Thai, and Vietnamese. And um, in the portfolio, uh, basically, uh, there's description uh, where participants explain her journey of relocating to Taiwan, and they talk about these everyday activities they engage in, like working in the factory, caring for family, working farmland, starting a new business, and. They talk about these everyday activities as a way to demonstrate their citizenship by relating to the audience. Because as the audience, you know, I we see these everyday activities, everyday living, um, like what you know many of us do, and we start to imagine a stronger uh, connection. And so, to me, in this public. And also intimate space, the ways these members relate to each other and to Taiwan uh, were witness what, uh, while their differences were actually manifested in various languages, cultural practices, nationalities, and occupation. So this community hall um, conjures a sense of imagination about the future. Um, and then I call this this act as collective dreaming. So they're talking about the past, the present, but inviting us as audience to imagine what a future could be. Um, so... In addition to physical space, the online spaces also are arenas to witness various relationality in action. Um, Taiwan Public Television produced several award-winning shows that has online platforms, and these shows are about newcomers. in Taiwan. And one of the shows called um, Oh My Taiwan Style, that's um, to basically show international students' perspectives and experiences of Taiwan. And one episode featured Cho Huan, a Vietnamese graduate student in education who teaches Taiwanese people Vietnamese language and culture. And Chiu Huan's mother uh, was also a newcomer in Taiwan. So um, the audience learned that Chiu Huan um, from watching right, the, the episode, the audience learned that Chiu Huan and her Taiwanese boyfriend um, who um, you know, uh, collaborated with her to create uh, online video clip, uh, clips. Of Vietnamese language lessons, so by watching these videos, um, we as audience witness these interethnic couples showing, you know, ways to expand Taiwanese views, uh, Taiwanese viewers' image of the Vietnamese uh, newcomers, because there were you know, stereotypes of, you know, Vietnamese newcomers um, as as cheap laborers or foreign brides, and. From that stereotypes to now, because we're watching, you know, both collaborating as equal partners, um, there is a sense of um, seeing and witnessing a, a equal partnership, um, uh, whose uh, or at least you know Chiu Huan as an equal partners to um, her boyfriend, um, her Vietnamese culture and language are just as interesting and attractive um, you know to the audience and then that episode also drew you know many uh, comments and and responses um, online so this online space as a way to as a place for us to see you know uh, interactions where relationality is is in the process of being built and, and of course you know there were Uh, uh, rare comments where uh, discriminatory and even racist comment was made about um, you know uh, Southeast uh, newcomers from Southeast Asia Uh, but at the same time there were always immediate you know counter um, uh, engagement to uh, dispute um, you know this um, imperialistic way of um, you know, treating and viewing other fellow human beings. So I see both physical and online spaces um, as places where relationality is being molded and, um, you know, um, reinvented and sometimes challenged, right, Um, to, 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 make us all think about what it means to be a Taiwanese and to belong to Taiwan
1: right and it's especially you mentioned this uh what you turn this kind of like collective dreamings the dimension and also different practices of this collective dreaming and also this vision for the future which is multilingual multicultural and also have multiple possibilities and multiple uh, trajectories as well um so uh So now we talk about Taiwan, the histories and different uh, communities, new immigrants. And uh, the next question is about Taiwan and beyond. So the question will be about how does Taiwan use this relational citizenship to navigate its complicated position, especially in the geopolitical sense in the global community?
0: Yes, Um, so I wanted to also um, kind of add a little bit more onto um, these sort of performances of um, of relational citizenship um, that is oftentimes um, to be struggled over. So there, you know, has been um, you know conflicts and and fights for. Uh, newcomer's presence in Taiwan as, you know, uh, full members that belong. Right. So I don't, I want to, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, make sure that um, I also stress on that. This is not all the kind of, um, you know, happy Kambawa, you know, kind of process in the process. There definitely were, you know, struggles and, um So in answering your question about um, uh, how Taiwan is using uh, relational uh, citizenship uh, to um, uh, connect to or exist in a larger uh, global uh, environment, because of Taiwan's unique and complex positioning, in the world constrained by the PRC, um, its citizens become, you know, an important avenue uh, to build its standing in the world, right? So um, in turn, uh, this need also allows its newcomers to gain their footings in Taiwan, so the concept of relational citizenship interacts with, you know, these constraints and solidifies Taiwanese national identity. And, and that can be, you know, that was witnessed in several areas. Um, so first of all, uh, newcomers relationalities viewed as Taiwan's conduit to the world. Uh, both former President Ma ying and current President Tsai Ing-wen um, have encouraged new immigrants and their offsprings to maintain their mother tongues um, and cultures. Um, so, for example, in 2013, former President Ma said that, um, I'm quoting here, Taiwan needs to cultivate relevant talents and emphasize relationships with the region of Southeast Asia. And in Tsai Ing-wen, President Tsai's first inauguration speech, um, she also announced this uh, new Southbound policy to broaden exchanges and expand Taiwan's ties with countries in Southeast Asia and India. And then... Um, in in you know serious policy, there were programming and resources being you know um, dedicated to focus on the second generations living and uh, learning abroad, uh, spending summer visiting their parents' country of origin, and um, this cultural exchange served as slow media that brought about influences so in you know both of the uh, the national leaders uh, visions and, and policies uh, we see second generation of immigrants connections to um, and also their language ability of uh, another country um, are uh, viewed as uh, you know a symbolic capital for themselves as well as for Taiwan and <clears throat> Sorry. So the focus on the newcomers' relationality uh, was effective because the language that was used to describe them uh, that's very heavily focusing on relationalities of um, of them to Taiwan. Um, Using the concept of Qing that draw the uh, Taiwanese um, native, the so-called natives, to to um, to recognize and accept right, the newcomers' um, belongingness to Taiwan. Um, in the process. And at the same time, relational citizenship also helps create both internal and external borders. Um, many programs that offer resources to newcomers often use household as a unit for qualification. For example, in a 2018 program, newcomers could borrow tablets for th- um um, for free up to 30 days. Uh, however, most migrant workers do not have family in Taiwan, so then they indirectly were excluded from, you know, the resources. And these migrants also serve as a, um, the backdrop against Taiwanese governments highlighting itself as, you know, one of the nation's most effective at um, securing its border And um, in 2018, um, a US report on trafficking in persons report, um, Taiwan was labeled and recognized as a first tier status um, for the ninth executive year. And it was specified that unlike China, who was, you know, uh, a tier three, Taiwan was tier one. And um, the then US Secretary uh, Mike. Pompeo and Ivanka Trump made a special mentioning of Taiwan's achievement. So, you know, Southeast Asian transmigrants um were highlighted in Taiwan's efforts of fighting against human trafficking. And and while human trafficking remains very significant, you know, human rights issues to confront, um, U.S. annually rank nations into various tiers and then therefore use foreign aid as a strategy to sanction, you know, countries classified as, say, you know, tier three, right? So regulating transnational migrants in Taiwan is intricately connected with um, Taiwan's prominent role when addressing global issues of human trafficking. So... um, in a way that newcomers' uh, relationality is also used as a way to uh, fortify, you know, uh, Taiwanese border. Um, So uh, certain newcomers are integrated into Taiwan's citizenry while others are not, um, but both in some way extend or help to extend Taiwan's international space and relationality with the West
1: Right. And then, so we talk about Taiwan, we talk about border crossing, we talk about new immigrants, but in your book, very interestingly, you also talk about United States and then you develop this term relational amnesia as well. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what is the relational amnesia in crafting citizenship in the United States? Um, Yes. Um, So, even though the the concept of
0: relationality um, was derived derived from Taiwan's experience, and I really, uh, you know, uh, wanted to show its applications to uh, other societies. And um, so in my book, I applied this concept to examining the U.S. um, situation. And I examining um, the discourses about immigrants um, in the U.S., uh, during like two periods of times one is um, in the 2017 and 2018 when the term chain migration was popularized by former president donald trump and um, the other time was during uh, the uh, great depression uh, between 1938 to 1939 and these two periods um, were interesting to me and comparable is because these are the Uh, two periods that uh, anti-immigration sentiment uh, was very high. So I examining uh, public discourses in these two periods. um, During the Trump administration, I look at, you know, his tweets and reaction to the tweets, as well as uh, mainstream media's um, reporting on, you know, chain migration. And during the Great Depression time, I... um, look at uh, a nationally popular broadcasting series called Americans All, Immigrants All. Um, This was a a radio uh, program that featured 26 episodes of immigrant stories from various countries. And it uh, was a collaboration between the governments, academic, and also civic um, uh, communities. And so in... Analyzing these two periods, even though um, relationalities of newcomers were uh, described and framed slightly differently, I found that um, newcomers uh, are encouraged to dissociate themselves from their past. And so there was seems to be, you know, even like expectation for them to sever connections to their former lives. And so their relationships between, you know, their uh, current and future life in the US and their past, their relationship to their past uh, in their country of origin uh, was organized in almost like an oppositional kind of binary way. And um, so I use the term relational amnesia to really refer to this lost connection with previous generations. And this loss of connections results in a truncated memory of one's cultural history. And, um, and I believe that one of the risks is this generational loss of uh, collective memory and cultural history uh, that really expands beyond physical bounds like nation states. Um, So relational citizenship, therefore to me, offers a possibility to resist against um, this, this impact of relational amnesia. Um, because this um, re- relational amnesia at the same time is supported by the idea of singular loyalty, I think by focusing on relationalities of newcomers and in fact, all citizens, right um, provides an alternative to reimagining how to do belonging uh, in our current um, world where, there's abundance of um, voluntary and involuntary movements.
1: Right, and then especially you mentioned this possibility of the alternative model, alternative uh, formation of a belonging, that is across border, uh, national border, and linguistic cultural border. So this is uh, about the book, and before we wrap up, we would like to know what you are working on right now, or maybe uh, you would like to share with us what your next project will be. Um, certainly. Um, so. I continue to be
0: interested in Taiwan's uh, subjectivity development, and I've co-edited a book on resistance in Taiwan and Hong Kong, which will be released next year by Michigan State University Press. And um, in the collection, I also wrote a chapter analyzing how President Tsai Ing-wen incorporated relationality in her rhetoric on building Taiwan-style nationalism. And on the other hand, I, um, you know, continue to apply relational citizenship to examining the U.S. context. So I analyzed um, and tried to understand Asian-Americans' relationality um, in the aftermath of the verdict on the um, SFFA versus Harvard's case. Um, So the article um, will be published soon in the Western Journal of Communication. Um, Currently, I'm conducting interviews with Asian American women to understand their experiences.
1: All right. So, uh, Yi, that all sounds fantastic project. And especially looking forward to your upcoming uh, publication and also chapters as well. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoy this book and the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me me
0: on and for hosting this program.
1: I also want to thank you, our audience, for uh, being with us till the end. Take good care. Stay safe. We will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.